Hey everybody, this is Ruben, and you're listening to Amazing Stories. It was still dark outside as Joseph Dornano, the chief of police in the city of Arles, sat down to his first cup of coffee of the morning on the 24th of December 1888. On his desk, the paperwork from the night before awaited his attention. Apart from the routine list of brawls and domestic disputes, one report stood out. Just before midnight on Sunday the 23rd of December, something strange had happened in the heart of the red light district. As he began reading, Joseph Dornano examined the small package, messily bundled in newspaper, that accompanied the report. What took place in Arles that night was so unusual and so utterly bewildering that everyone involved would recall it until the day they died. At around 11.45pm, a local policeman had been called to one of the town's brothels, the House of Tolerance No. 1. There had been a commotion involving a man and a girl had fainted. The man lived just across the road from the police station so the chief inspector asked his assistant to send someone over to the house. At around 7.15am, a gendarme was dispatched. There were no shutters on the windows at street level, and as dawn was breaking, the gendarme peered inside. No one appeared to be home. The ground-floor room was modestly furnished, with a table, several chairs and a couple of easels. The gendarme noticed a pile of soiled rags on the floor, and dark spots and splashes across the walls. He returned to his superior to report his findings. The chief of police decided that this particular incident would warrant his own special attention. By the time he arrived, a small group of locals had gathered, and the morning air was bristling with gossip and curiosity. The policeman opened the door. Inside it was eerily quiet. The room doubled as a kitchen and painter's studio. On one side were brightly coloured canvases stacked against the wall, brushes in jars, half-used tubes of oil paint, paint-smeared rags, and a large mirror propped on one of the easels. Dark stains were splattered on the terracotta tiles, and a trail of drops led to the blue door that opened onto a hallway and narrow stairs beyond. Chief Donano climbed the stairs, to a cramped, attic-like room, shrouded in darkness. He ordered a gendarme to open the shutters. Half hidden under the dishevelled bedding was the body of a man. Dark blooms of blood spread on the pillows next to the man's head. The victim, as the local newspaper later put it, showed no signs of life. Signalling that he had seen enough, the chief made his way back downstairs. In the small, quiet town, news of a crime started to spread. Around 8am, an imposing middle-aged man was seen walking across the park. When he reached Place Lamartine and the little house he shared with his fellow painter, he saw a large crowd. For the chief of police, it was an open-and-shut case. Faced with the scene, the bloody rags, blood-spattered walls, a body and a missing lodger, he could come to only one conclusion. The eccentric red-haired painter had been killed. Joseph Dornano didn't have to look too far for the culprit, because as luck would have it, he was walking directly towards him across the square. Upon reaching the yellow house that bright Christmas Eve morning of 1888, the artist Paul Gauguin was arrested for the murder of Vincent van Gogh. The start of a new adventure is always the most enjoyable, not knowing where you are going or what you might find. This particular adventure began seven years ago. I live in the south of France, about 50 miles from the town of Arles, famed for its Roman ruins and for being the home of Vincent van Gogh in the late 1880s. It was in Arles where van Gogh famously cut off his ear. It is arguably the most famous anecdote about any artist and has come to define his character and his art for generations. We cannot see a Van Gogh painting 
without interpreting his brushstrokes in the light of his much-documented breakdown. Yet it is a story swathed in myth. The Van Gogh Museum in Amsterdam describes what happened. On the evening of the 23rd of December 1888, Van Gogh suffered an acute mental breakdown. As a result, he cut off part of his left ear and took it to a prostitute. The police found him at home the following day and had him admitted to hospital. Something happened to Vincent van Gogh in Arles. Something had made his painting reach its greatest expression and yet had also pushed him to utter despair. One day, recuperating from an illness, I thought I would try to better understand van Gogh's story. Stuck at home with no access to a library or archives, I used the art books I had on my shelves and did some research online. I went back to the Van Gogh Museum's summary and immediately had questions. Cut off part of his left ear. Only part? Like most people, I'd always believed that he had cut off his whole ear. Where had this assumption come from? And who was this prostitute? Why would Van Gogh take her such a gory gift? And how did Van Gogh arrive in Arles in February 1888 with such excitement and promise, only to kill himself less than two and a half years later? Before long, I'd set out a timeline of Van Gogh's life in Arles. Yet the more I learnt, the more I questioned. Early on in my research, and somewhat foolhardily, I decided to create a database of the people who lived in Arles in 1888. I needed to amass a cache of verified information on Van Gogh's contemporaries and neighbours if I were ever to understand his life there. I assumed at first I'd need files on perhaps 700 to 1,000 people. Now, seven years later, I hold records on more than 15,000 individuals. Over time, these figures have become rich, real people to me, almost like characters in a long 19th-century novel. Through this, I have got to know a man and a place. Like Van Gogh's letters, the details in my database take me into his day-to-day -day existence and, with his paintings, form a unique diary of his time in the city. I can identify and flesh out the lives of the people Vincent painted. I feel I know them, their habits, their children, and I can spot small details in paintings that give signs of their lives or their identity. They are no longer simply faces on canvas, as they once were to me, but Vincent's friends, the workers and locals he saw every day, and the people who played a significant part in his life. The ear was simply the beginning. Van Gogh had dabbled in drawing and painting since he was a child, and from the mid-1880s when he was in his early thirties, having already been an art dealer, a teacher and a trainee pastor, he was working more seriously. Around this time he executed his first major work, the Potato Eaters. The canvas is unrelentingly harsh, a social commentary on the life and dire conditions of the Dutch peasant community. In February 1886, Vincent arrived in Paris to live with his younger brother Theo, an art dealer. Since the early 1880s, Theo had been providing Vincent with a monthly stipend from his own salary. The relationship between the brothers has become an essential part of Vincent's life story. The genius of Van Gogh, aided and abetted by the selfless generosity of Theo. Yet living together in Paris was not without its strains. The two men argued, and occasionally these rows were nasty. In early 1887, they reached crisis point. Theo wrote... It is a pity that Vincent has so much difficulty with his character, for in the long run it is quite impossible to get on with him. Vincent had moved his life and work wholesale into Theo's space, transforming the apartment into an artist's studio. His irascibility and erratic behaviour compounded the issue. In November 1887, Van Gogh organised a show at the restaurant known as Le Petit Chalet, it was not a success. Disillusioned and depressed, Van Gogh was desperate to leave Paris and start afresh somewhere new. He revived an idea he had first mooted in 1886, 
to go to the south of France. The train pulled into Arles station at 4.49pm on Monday the 20th of February 1888. The south of France is associated with sunshine and light, so Vincent was surprised to arrive as the city was experiencing a rare cold snap. Daylight was fading as he made his way through the remains of the old city gate to the Hotel Restaurant Carrel. While he was eating his supper in the hotel dining room at around 8pm, it began to snow. According to the official weather records, more than eight inches fell overnight. Unable to venture far, Van Gogh chose his first subject close at hand, the scene directly across from the hotel dining room, featuring the local butcher's shop. Situated at 61 Rue Amédée Pichot, the butcher's shop was owned by Antoine Reboul. In the immediate foreground, dominating the painting, are the wrought iron frames of the dining room windows. The only human presence is a woman scurrying along the street, about to enter the butcher's. Wearing a cap over her hair with a green shawl over her shoulders, she hitches up the hem of her skirt as if to avoid getting it wet in the wintry sludge. On the pavement there are the melting remains of recent snowfall. This picture can be dated fairly precisely. One afternoon around the 24th of February 1888, after the lunch service was over, Van Gogh sat in the dining room of his hotel in Arles and painted this shop. His paintings are full of clues to understanding Van Gogh's experience in Arles. They document his mood, his friends and his way of life. I tried to ascertain when, why, where and how each picture was painted in the hope that I might uncover some small gem to illuminate further the events of that incredible year, a year that had started with such promise and ended on such a dark note. Settling in was not easy for the painter, especially as making friends among the locals took time. Happily, his loneliness was short-lived. In the first few days of March, he made the acquaintance of a Danish artist, Christian Mourier Pettersen. The two men started exploring and taking long walks in the surrounding countryside. By mid-March, the weather was getting warmer. The sudden arrival of spring was enchanting, and Vincent was inspired. He wrote, This morning I worked on an orchard of plum trees in blossom. Suddenly a tremendous wind began to blow and came back again at intervals. In the intervals, sunshine that made all the little white flowers sparkle. It was so beautiful. Vincent completed 17 canvases of trees in blossom that spring. The two artists formed a habit of working together, meeting at their favourite café to go out, braving the Mistral to paint orchards. They would paint side by side, Vincent sitting down, whilst the Dane worked at an easel standing up. March was blustery, with ten days of Mistral wind, but Vincent had come south to paint, and nothing would put him off. In a frenzy of activity, he completed more than 30 paintings in his first nine weeks in Provence. The simple life of Arles embodied an ideal for Vincent. His paintings and choice of subject matter illustrate his fascination with this rural idyll. At first he painted largely landscapes, enchanted by the spring blossom, wide plains and uninterrupted sky. He also turned his focus on the city and made studies of women washing clothes in the river and views of the Longlois Bridge. Between his arrival in February and the end of April 1888, he didn't stop painting and drawing, amassing a vast horde of canvases which he propped awkwardly in his bedroom at the Hotel Restaurant Carrel to dry. But there was never enough space, and his work spilled over into other parts of the hotel, much to the proprietor's chagrin. Canvases were left to dry on the terrace, blocking the corridors 
and perfuming his bedroom with the acrid stench of oils and turpentine. Vincent's life was simple, with few expenses, but he was not good with money, and with no income save for his brother Theo's regular stipend, Van Gogh found himself constantly battling his budget. The financial pressure began to affect his health. Throughout April, his letters are peppered with references to his terribly weak stomach. He claims to be troubled by fits of faintness, plagued with toothache. He had already lost ten of his teeth. He could not stay at the Hotel Carrel any longer. He wrote, I don't feel comfortable here. Worse still, I want my nervous system to calm down. On the 1st of May, he wrote to Theo, I've just sent you a roll of small pen drawings. Among them you'll find a hasty croquis on yellow paper, a lawn in the public garden at the entrance to the town, and in the background, a house. He went on enthusiastically. Today I rented the right-hand wing of this building, which contains four rooms. It's painted yellow outside, whitewashed inside. I rented it for 15 francs a month. Now, what I'd like to do would be to furnish a room, the one on the first floor, to be able to sleep there. Mindful of the extra expense of furnishing an entire house, Van Gogh initially agreed only to take the ground floor of number 2 Place Lamartine. The property had been empty for almost two years and needed refurbishing. He wrote to Theo, I got them to agree to repaint the house, the front, the doors and the windows outside and inside. From May until mid-September 1888, Van Gogh used the house as a studio, slept at the Café de la Gare and took his meals next door at the Auberge Venissac for a total of 90 francs a month. This was a considerably less expensive option than the Hotel Carrel. Van Gogh's closest friend in Arles was the postal employee Joseph Roulin, whose job involved loading the mailbags on and off the trains at Arles Station. Vincent wrote to Theo, I'm working with another model, a postman in a blue uniform with gold trimmings, a big bearded face, very Socratic, a raging Republican, a more interesting man than many people. From May onwards, with a new studio and greater stability in his life, Vincent would paint some of his greatest works, The Yellow House, Starry Night Over the Rhone, Sunflowers and a view of the Longlois Bridge. Gradually, the idea of sharing The Yellow House with a fellow painter began to coalesce. After all, two could live as cheaply as one. Exactly when Gauguin met Van Gogh is not completely clear, though it was sometime in late 1887 at the exhibition at Le Chalet in Paris. The meeting led to an exchange of paintings. Though unwell and constantly strapped for cash, Gauguin soon emerged as the main candidate to join Vincent in Arles. Gauguin had already established quite a reputation. He had shown his work with the Impressionists, and he was a friend of Edgar Degas and Camille Pissarro. He was a bon vivant, a legendary bohemian who had sailed around the world, then abandoned his wife and family to paint. In June, Théo wrote to Gauguin with a formal proposition. He would provide Gauguin with a stipend in return for one painting each month. When he received Théo's letter, Gauguin was already three months in debt, with no ready source of income. From Gauguin's perspective, it was a good deal, a source of income, a fresh start in the South, and a connection to an art dealer whom he respected and who admired his work. In late July, Gauguin wrote confirming that he wanted to come South. For Vincent, Gauguin couldn't come soon enough. I believe that it would make an enormous difference to me if Gauguin was here, because the days pass now without saying a word to anyone. There was admiration, if not hero-worship, in the way Van Gogh perceived Gauguin. A very spirited painter, he wrote to his sister Will. He's someone who works like one possessed. However, in his letters, he was also mindful of the difficulties of living with someone else, given how difficult it had been sharing the apartment with Theo in Paris. 
He acknowledged the importance of working harmoniously with Gauguin and trying not to quarrel, especially given Gauguin's reputation for arguing with artists and dealers. Supposing that Gauguin would be coming sometime soon, Van Gogh threw himself into getting the house ready. But as summer drew to a close, Gauguin sent a letter with new demands. He wanted Theo not only to provide a monthly stipend, but also to cover his debts and pay his fare to Arles. Distressed, Vincent wrote to Theo, I instinctively feel that Gauguin is a calculating person. Frustrated by Gauguin's prevarication, Vincent found succour in work, painting Starry Night Over the Rhone, Café Terrace at Night and La Mousmée, a portrait of a young girl who sat for Vincent in her lovely striped dress, nervously holding an oleander. In all probability, this is Therese Catherine Mistral, who lived just five minutes' walk from the Yellow House. Her family were good friends of Bernard Soulet, Vincent's house agent. Van Gogh's investment in his art involved much more than putting paint on canvas. His was a frenzy of execution, draining his emotional energy and leaving him physically broken and fragile. He would be utterly absorbed as he worked. Some observers recorded that he seemed to blink constantly, smoked his pipe without pause and barely communicated with his model. Everything was at maximum intensity. The energy he hurled into his work, the effort he put into setting up the yellow house and his anxiousness about Gauguin's arrival. Something had to give. Vincent's costs increased dramatically once he took on the whole house in September 1888, but Theo sent extra money to pay for furnishings. Vincent chose the larger of the two upstairs bedrooms for himself, from where you can see the sunrise in the morning. His painting of his bedroom is one of the most famous and most beloved of his works. The strange angles created by the bedroom's almost rhomboid shape can be seen on the floor, under the washstand and in the corner above his bed, which doesn't sit true against the wall. On hooks on the wall behind the bed hang the jackets, coats and straw hat he wore and which appear in many of his self-portraits. Vincent probably painted this work sitting beside a small fireplace which came halfway into the room on the left. The distortion accentuates the intimacy of the scene because the spectator is there with him in the tiny cramped space. Since the early summer, a deep sulphur yellow had permeated many of Vincent's paintings. When I saw the painting The Yellow House in Amsterdam, I already knew quite a lot about Place Lamartine. That yellow is so hard to get right in reproductions, and I was startled by seeing the real painting. The yellow is intense and glowing, almost radiating out of the canvas, accentuating a feeling of heightened reality. It felt very special to be looking at Van Gogh's home in Arles through his eyes, full of the hope and optimism of that summer of 1888, at the bright green shutters, the passers-by in the street, the men sitting having a chat at the café, and the nod to Roulin, whose home was beyond the bridge. I could almost smell the smoke in the air and hear the whistle of the train. I imagined the dust and inconvenience of the roadworks that are just visible. Despite the modern museum surroundings, I was standing in front of the gendarmerie, looking across the road at the yellow house with the scorching sun on my back. I was in Arles in 1888. As the summer progressed, Van Gogh had entered a period of intense creativity, inspired by the beauty and colours of Provence, battling the wind, sun, flies and his own mental health, Vincent had become a great painter. Shortly after 4am on the 23rd of October, Gauguin descended from the train in Arles. As dawn broke, Gauguin made his way to the Yellow House. Yet all was not well. The preparations to ready the house for Gauguin's arrival had left Van Gogh physically and mentally exhausted. Gauguin wrote to Théo, confirming that Vincent was out of sorts. I've been in Arles since Tuesday morning. However, your brother is a little agitated. 
I hoped to gradually calm him down. Exactly how agitated was not explained, but the fact that Gauguin found it necessary to mention it at all to Théo implies that it was relatively serious. Worried that perhaps Gauguin had said something to his brother, Vincent wrote to Théo, My brain feels tired and dry again, but I am better this week than the previous fortnight. Gauguin brought a degree of order and routine to Van Gogh's living habits, and life at the Yellow House began to improve. Van Gogh introduced Gauguin to his favourite haunts, and this odd couple, the Parisian gentleman and the flame-haired painter, soon became a familiar sight around Arles. By late autumn, the weather was mild, and Vincent was painting almost non-stop. Still in the first flush of his love for the town, he found his subject matter out and about in Arles, though this time he was painting alongside Gauguin. Gauguin, though, was not as enamoured by Arles as his housemate, and Van Gogh worried that Gauguin's mind was elsewhere. In early November, Vincent wrote to Théo that the two artists had been to see the girls of the Red Light District. Gauguin had been raised in an all-female household and had a reputation as a ladies' man. His behaviour surprised and sometimes shocked Vincent. He wrote to Émile Bernard, who knew Gauguin well from their days together in Brittany, Gauguin interests me greatly as a man, greatly. Without the slightest doubt, we're in the presence of an unspoilt creature with the instincts of a wild beast. With Gauguin, blood and sex have the edge over ambition. Given how intense emotions overwhelmed the vulnerable Van Gogh, his assessment of the more naturally gregarious Gauguin as a wild beast is not surprising. The phrase implies admiration and awe, as well as a tinge of apprehension. As December progressed, Van Gogh's behaviour changed. Gone was the optimistic and inspired artist that Gauguin had worked alongside in November. Vincent had started to become argumentative and erratic, and was gradually becoming impossible to live with. Paul Gauguin had come south in search of a collaborative relationship with a fellow painter not to be the nursemaid to an individual on the verge of a nervous breakdown. Winter in Provence is a quiet time of year. Colour is bleached from the landscape and the nights draw in early. Once the sun has gone down, there is little to do. My first winter here was rather a shock. With no television, I read and wrote letters, much as Vincent did in 1888. December 1888 was a particularly difficult time for the artists in the Yellow House. The weather suddenly turned cold and there were heavy overnight frosts. The painters were stuck indoors, which did nothing to lift their mood. The initial joy and excitement of working together was replaced by almost constant bickering. Gauguin complained to their mutual friend Émile Bernard, I'm in Arles like a fish out of water. I find everything, the landscape and the people, so small, so petty. Vincent and I rarely agree on anything, especially about painting. Vincent, in turn, wrote to his brother Theo, I think that Gauguin has become a little disheartened by the good town of Arles, by the little yellow house where we work, and above all, by me. Indeed, there are bound to be grave difficulties still to overcome here, for him as well as for me. More worrying was Vincent's conclusion that, these difficulties are rather within ourselves than elsewhere. Gauguin is very strong, very creative, but precisely because of that he must have peace. Will he find it elsewhere if he doesn't find it here? I'm waiting with absolute serenity for him to make a decision. I doubt very much that Vincent was waiting with absolute serenity. If Gauguin left, Van Gogh's dream of an atelier of the South would crumble. 
Yet for Gauguin, the decision had already been made. He was determined to leave, writing tersely to Théo. Vincent and I can absolutely not live side by side without trouble, as a result of incompatibility of temperament. He is a man of remarkable intelligence, whom I greatly respect and whom I leave with regret. But I repeat, it is necessary. Gauguin's discomfort and tact in this letter are evident. It was clear that Vincent was manifestly mentally ill. Gauguin later wrote in his autobiography, During the latter part of my stay, Vincent became excessively brusque and noisy, then silent. Several nights I surprised Vincent, who, having risen, was standing over my bed. To what can I attribute my awakening just at that moment? Invariably it sufficed for me to say to him very gravely, What's the matter, Vincent? For him to go back to bed without a word, and to fall into a deep sleep. The following morning, Van Gogh would have no recollection of his nighttime behaviour, but for Gauguin, it was deeply unsettling. As the tension escalated, the weather worsened. Days of torrential rain imprisoned them in the yellow house. In the three days from the 21st to the 23rd of December, Arles saw almost 30 inches of rainfall. The narrow cobbled streets ran with rivers of rainwater. On the morning of Sunday, the 23rd of December, Vincent received a letter that seemed to worsen his mood dramatically, and later that day a row broke out. Gauguin observed, Ever since the question arose of my leaving Arles, he had been so queer that I hardly had a life any more. He said to me, Are you going to leave? And since I had said, Yes, he tore a sentence from a newspaper and put it into my hand. The murderer fled. For many years, this newspaper anecdote seemed just another of Gauguin's apocryphal tales. Yet on this occasion, Gauguin was telling the truth. The murderer fled is the last line of an article that appeared in L'Intransigeant that day. The extract that Vincent chose to thrust into Gauguin's hand was from an article about a young man who had been recently stabbed in the capital, ominously titled Parisian Cutthroat. Gauguin was desperate. He had to get out. In turmoil, Van Gogh must have watched him moving through the rooms in silence, gathering his belongings. In late December, the evening meal would have been around 7.30, after which Gauguin went out for a walk. I felt the need to go out on my own and take some air. I had already almost crossed the place when I heard behind me the familiar, short, rapid, irregular footsteps. I turned just at the moment when Vincent rushed towards me, an open razor in his hand. My look at that moment must have been powerful indeed, for he stopped and, lowering his head, took off, running in the direction of the house. Traumatised, Gauguin went to a hotel for the night. As I approached the details of the day of the drama, my overriding sensation was one of circumspection. Many researchers had come before me, but the details of the day remained hazy. Gauguin's role has always been unclear. He left almost immediately afterwards and never saw Van Gogh again. Traumatised by his time in Arles and its dramatic conclusion, Gauguin freely gossiped on his return to Paris about his escapade in the South and recounted the whole sorry affair to his friend Émile Bernard. The local newspaper extract from Le Forum Républicain on the 30th of December confirmed the next part of the story. At some point between the end of dinner and approximately 11.20pm, Vincent cut his ear managed to staunch the flow of blood, bandaged his head and left the yellow house for the red light district. He would have gone immediately right along Rue des Glacières to the House of Tolerance No. 1. At the doorway, Vincent apparently asked for Rachel. He was carrying a package which he handed over, telling her to take care of it, before disappearing into the night. Here is Gauguin's account of the events after this, as related to Bernard, and by Bernard, to his friend Albert Aurier. I went and slept in the hotel, and when I returned, the whole of Arles was in front of our house. 
Then the police arrested me because there was blood everywhere. Here's what happened. Vincent had gone home after I'd left the park, taken the razor and had sliced through his ear. He covered his head with a large beret and then went to a whorehouse. Immediately the girl fainted. The police were called and went to the house. Vincent was taken to hospital. As for Gauguin, naturally he was let go without any charge. The drama of the ear is the best-known story about Van Gogh, but it is rife with contradiction. Van Gogh never mentions the incident directly, but the local newspaper, Paul Gauguin, Théo, and later the Impressionist painter Paul Signac, all confirm that Vincent injured his ear, though none of these accounts tally concerning exactly what he did. Did he cut off the lobe, part of the ear, or the full ear? In the aftermath of his breakdown, Vincent did provide some details concerning the extent of his injury. By early January 1889, he had returned from hospital to pick up the threads of his life, writing to Theo, I hope that I've just had a simple artist's bout of craziness and then a lot of fever following a considerable loss of blood. One source of unimpeachable and trustworthy evidence should be hospital records yet none remain. Because the ear incident came to the attention of the police, there should also have been a record of it in the police files, but again I found nothing. The confusion as to how much of his ear Vincent actually cut off began during his lifetime. Gauguin maintained that Van Gogh cut off his whole ear. The local newspaper recorded that Vincent handed his ear to the prostitute Rachel, Later, this was confirmed by Alphonse Robert, the policeman who was summoned to the brothel that night. But Joe, Theo's young wife, wrote that only a piece of the ear was cut off. The most widely accepted version of how Vincent wounded himself comes from the artist Paul Signac, who spent time with Van Gogh shortly after the incident and stated unequivocally that Vincent cut off the lobe. Yet Signac became recognised as the acceptable source of what Vincent did that night, and thanks to Signac and Joe's remark, the official line from the Van Gogh Museum is that Vincent cut off the lower part of the ear. As I weighed each account, I began to think that the question of what Vincent had done that night might never be successfully resolved. After my first trip to the Van Gogh Museum in Amsterdam, while filing the photocopies I had taken there, I noticed something that sparked my interest. It was a single line in a letter from 1955, and it set me on a trail to a library in the United States. The Bancroft Library at the University of California houses the author Irving Stone's papers. In 1934, at the height of the Great Depression, Stone had written a fictionalised biography of Vincent called Lust for Life. Moreover, he had made a trip to Arles and had visited Dr. Felix Rey. In early 2010, I emailed the archivist, David Kessler. Dear David, I corresponded with you late last year concerning my research project on Van Gogh. After working in Amsterdam, I came across a reference in a letter concerning Mr. Stone's papers that interests me greatly. There is mention of a drawing done for Stone by Dr. Ray of Van Gogh's ear on a prescription form. Do you have anything that looks like this? Dr. Felix Ray was a young doctor in Arles and the first person to treat Van Gogh when he arrived at the hospital on the 24th of December 1888. The likelihood of Stone having kept the drawing was slim, but the possibility was too exciting to disregard. I couldn't quite believe that there might perhaps be, tucked away in an archive in California, a drawing of exactly what lay under that bandage. David replied promptly, I will retrieve the two boxes from off-site storage again and have another look. It's hard for me to believe that something as startling and pointed as the drawing you want would be buried unnoticed, but it won't hurt to have a look. That night, I barely slept. The following morning... I received another email. You aren't going to believe it, but I found the drawing you're looking for. Isn't that something? It was the third document in the first folder in the box. 
I wired the library payment for a scan of the document and then had to wait for a few days until it could be processed and sent to me. When I received it early one morning via email, I started to shake. In August 1930, the American novelist Irving Stone went to see Dr. Felix Rey at his surgery in Arles. Dr. Rey still worked at the hospital, which was in the same rundown building that Vincent had known in 1888. He was no longer the fresh-faced intern who had met Van Gogh, but was now a 65-year-old doctor on the verge of retiring. Stone asked Dr. Rey if he would kindly draw an illustration of Vincent's injury. Dr. Rey tore off a page from his prescription pad and, using a black ink pen and in the manner of a doctor, hastily drew two diagrams of Vincent van Gogh's ear, both before and after the injury. The whole left ear had been sliced cleanly off, leaving only a small stump of the lobe. Dr. Rey added a note at the bottom of the page. I'm happy to be able to give you the information you have requested concerning my unfortunate friend Van Gogh. I sincerely hope that you won't fail to glorify the genius of this remarkable painter, as he deserves. Cordially yours, Dr. Ray. I had found new information about Vincent Van Gogh. For the first two weeks of 1889, Van Gogh made regular visits to the hospital to get his wound dressed, and although he had started painting again, it was difficult to get his life back on track. He was still recuperating from the two crises of late December, the breakdown of the 23rd when he cut off his ear, followed by another on the 27th when he was recorded trying to eat coal and which led to his first traumatic experience of the isolation cell at the hospital. Here he was constrained with leather straps that passed through rings in the side of the metal bed, which was then attached to the wall and floor. For the rest of January and early February, Van Gogh was left to cope as best he might at the Yellow House, but he soon began to show signs of renewed disturbance. His odd behaviour was witnessed by his neighbour, Madame Ginoux, as she was hanging up laundry. Suddenly, Monsieur Vincent came down the steps and said nothing. I quietly continued to hang up the washing. When I was finished, he still stood there and looked at me with such eyes. I said, say something, Monsieur Vincent. Then he suddenly pulled down the whole rope and the entire wash lay on the floor. I stepped back a bit and he moved toward me. I tell you, I became really afraid then. It only lasted a minute, though. I made a joke and he laughed. That was the only time. Still unsettled, on the 3rd of February, Vincent mentioned to Theo that he had gone to see Rachel, the girl in the brothel to whom he had given his ear. Feeling the need to visit the girl was an ominous sign. Vincent was in crisis mode again. Clearly in the throes of another breakdown, Van Gogh was readmitted to hospital and placed in the isolation cell. After a few days, Dr. Ray wrote to Theo. The first day his delirium was general. Since yesterday, however, he is less delirious and he recognises me. He talks to me about painting, but sometimes he loses his train of thought and speaks nothing but disjointed words and jumbled phrases. It was a far cry from Vincent's assertions to his family in January that he was well and happy to be home and working. It was lonely and very grim. Van Gogh's illness was not straightforward. The extreme crises he had experienced were interspersed with periods of calm, lucidity and apparent recovery. It made it difficult to decide on a course of action. On this occasion, Vincent stayed in the hospital for a fortnight before returning to the Yellow House. However, resting quietly at home was no longer an option. While he had been away, the local residents had been discussing his behaviour and they had been working themselves up to take action. 
We, the undersigned, residents of Place Lamartine, have the honour to inform you that for some time the man named Vincent, a landscape painter and a Dutch subject, overindulges in drink, after which he is in a state of overexcitement, such that he no longer knows what he is doing or what he is saying, a cause for fear to all the residents, and especially to women and children. He should return forthwith to his family or be admitted to an asylum. On the 25th of February, this petition was received by the Mayor of Arles. It was signed by 30 individuals, locals from the neighbourhood, people Vincent saw daily, people he ate with and talked to. Drawing up a petition and sending it to your mayor was a normal reaction to a civil problem in late 19th century France. However, it was highly unusual to write to a mayor about a particular individual and ask him to take action to remove him, and in this sense the Arles petition is unique. The day after it was sent, Reverend Sal wrote to Théo, a petition signed by 30 neighbours informed the mayor of the inconvenience of allowing this man to remain entirely free. The document was promptly passed to the chief of police, who had your brother taken to hospital and recommended he be kept there. Vincent had only been home a matter of days. He wrote to his sister, In all, I've had four big crises, in which I hadn't the slightest idea of what I said, wanted, did. Confused and in a state of distress, this fourth breakdown in little more than two months was a severe blow to Vincent's morale as he began to realise that there might be no cure. Throughout January and February 1889, groups of people had gathered outside the Yellow House, attempting to get a glimpse of the painter who had cut off his ear. They turned his home into a sideshow. Reverend Sal recounted Vincent's reaction to the petition. This document has distressed him greatly. He told me, If the police would protect my freedom by preventing children and even grown-ups from gathering around my house and climbing onto the windows as they have done, as if I were some strange beast, then I would have been calmer. I haven't hurt anyone and I'm not dangerous. In the isolation cell at the hospital, Vincent felt yet again that his freedom had been violated. The petition against Van Gogh was another part of the puzzle I was keen to understand. By the early 1920s, it was said that close to a hundred people had signed it. These numbers fueled the image of Vincent as a tragic hero and misunderstood genius, and implied that local people were Philistines. Furthermore, generations of researchers who contacted the archive in Arles to ask about the petition were told it was lost. Then, in 1957, a librarian at the archive stumbled upon it. Many direct descendants of the petitioners were still alive, and the image of Vincent van Gogh had changed. He was now a world-famous artist. Fearful that these documents would paint the town in a bad light, the mayor chose not to mention their rediscovery. The documents entered the public domain only in 2003, when for the first time this missing Van Gogh file was revealed. The police inquiry in response to the petition began the day after Vincent had been returned to the isolation cell. The chief of police wrote, I, Joseph Dornano, Given the instruction of the mayor of Arles, ordering that Van Gogh's degree of madness be established, have opened an inquiry and interviewed those named below. 1. Monsieur Bernard Soulet made the following declaration. As the managing agent of the house occupied by Monsieur Vincent Van Gogh, I had occasion to speak with him yesterday and to observe that his conversation is incoherent and his mind wandering. Furthermore, I have heard it said that this man is prone to interfering with women living in the neighbourhood. Soule began his statement by saying, I have heard it said. This testimony should have been discounted. It was hearsay rather than his own eyewitness account. The police document continues. 2. Madame Marguerite Crevoulin, a general grocer, told us, I occupy the same house as Monsieur Vincent van Gogh, who is truly insane. 
He insults my customers and is prone to interfering with women whom he follows into their residences. 3. Madame Maria Viani, a retail tobacconist, confirmed the declaration of the previous witness. 4. Madame Jeanne Coulon said that the women no longer feel comfortable because he is prone to interfering with them and makes obscene remarks in their presence. The chief inspector's conclusion is that I am of the opinion that there are grounds for detaining this patient in a specialised asylum. Accompanying the paperwork in the public archives was a committal certificate. However, it was never dispatched. The explanation came in a letter from the Reverend Sal. It seems to me, and this view is shared by Vincent's doctor, that it would constitute an act of cruelty to lock up a man permanently who has done no one any harm and who, with care and kindness, could return to his normal state. I repeat, the best will prevails among all those around him at the hospital and everyone is willing to do their utmost to prevent his transfer to a lunatic asylum. The people who signed the petition that instigated the inquiry have always been judged severely. One biographer called the petition a conspiracy of hyenas, another that a large proportion of the community signed the petition. But the truth is that the district around Place Lamartine had a population of 747 in 1888, and 30 people hardly constitute a large proportion. I decided to identify everyone who had signed the petition. Who were these people, and why had they become involved in forcing Vincent to leave Arles? What did they have to gain? The first signatory was Vincent's immediate neighbour, the grocer Crevoulin. Given how much the Crevoulins must have seen and been affected by Vincent, it has always been assumed that they were solely responsible for the petition. However, there is another person, a crony of Crevoulin, who had much more to gain by Vincent's removal his house agent, Bernard Soulet. The yellow house was perfectly placed for commercial activity. Recently, at Vincent's insistence, money had been spent on renovating the building and the land agent couldn't afford to leave the house empty for long. While Van Gogh was stuck in hospital and expected to be committed, Soulet had started to look for a new tenant. In late December 1888, he had made a contract to convert the house into a tobacconist's. He told Van Gogh about this arrangement when he went to pick up the rent in early January, but on learning this news, Vincent wrote to Theo defending his right to keep his home. For Soulet, it was a disastrous scenario. Van Gogh had a lease, and after the radical improvement in his state of mind in the new year, Soulet couldn't force him out without very good reasons. This was a problem that needed subtle, even underhand, tactics. The petition was drawn up on thin, inexpensive paper. The handwriting of the petition text appears to be in the florid style of Crevoulin, and it is likely that the document was left on the counter of his grocery store for customers to sign. He was the first person to put his name down, followed by a man he employed as a shop assistant. Discovering that the shop assistant was illiterate, though, led me to study the other signatures. Three others who signed the petition appear to have been added in Crevoulin's script. As I learnt more, my research showed that the people behind the signatures, for the large part, were friends or work colleagues of Bernard Soulet. Of the five people interviewed by the police for their inquiry, damning declarations came from Bernard Soulet, Marguerite Crevoulin, the grocer's wife, and Jean Coulon, who was married to a work colleague of Soulet's. These three went into detail about the serious threat Van Gogh posed. Their remarks, depicting Vincent as a highly dangerous madman, have been quoted in almost every book written about him since. It's true that Vincent did have severe psychiatric problems, and during a breakdown his behaviour was erratic and paranoid, but the story has been exaggerated to seed the myth. For the town fathers of Arles, the petition and related documents 
imply an apparent lack of compassion for a man suffering from acute mental distress. The accusations made against him by a few people still influence how he is perceived in the region and has ramifications for Van Gogh's scholars. In 19th century France, visiting a prostitute was a normal part of the life of any unmarried man. Brothels, controlled by the town council for hygienic purposes, remained legal in France until 1946. In Vincent's day, there were eight official houses of tolerance not far from where he lived. The local statutes explained how these businesses functioned. Prostitutes had to be at least 21, they had to register with the police, providing proof of identity, age, place of birth and the names of both parents. There were regular police inspections of the houses, checking up on health and working conditions. All of this background information on brothels was interesting, but it wasn't getting me any closer to identifying the girl Van Gogh had visited that night in December 1888 and to whom he presented his severed ear. Even now, the girl's name given in the local press report, Rachel, is highly unusual in Provence. I checked the census returns and came up with nothing. I looked for clues in the database I had created for the 15,000 individuals living in Arles in 1888. Again, I came to a dead end. It was possible that Rachel was the girl's working name. If it was a working name, what was her real name? Returning to my sources, hoping I might have overlooked something significant, I found a letter from Alphonse Robert, the policeman called to Rue Boudal on the night Van Gogh cut off his ear. How could I have missed it? On his retirement, Robert was contacted about what he remembered of that night. He replied, I was passing by the House of Tolerance Number 1 in Rue Boudal. The prostitute's name escapes me, though her working name was Gabby. This was research gold, as Gabby could potentially be her real name. There were 30 Gabrielles in the database, and I started eliminating those who were too young or who had died as children. In the end, there were only two contenders. I ruled out one fairly quickly, as she had never left her village in the countryside. The other had lived in Arles. She had married a local butcher, and thanks to her married name, I managed to trace her descendants. Yet something bothered me. From the archives, I had learnt that it was very hard, if not impossible, ever to leave prostitution. But Gabrielle married and had a child. Something was not right. It slowly began to dawn on me that I might have made a monumental mistake. I had assumed that just because Vincent asked for the girl at the door of the brothel, she must have been a prostitute. But what if she wasn't? Depending on the size of the brothel, there would be staff, doormen, cooks, laundresses and cleaners. Gabrielle would also have been too young to be working as a prostitute. The 23rd of December 1888 was just a few weeks after her 19th birthday. I decided to write to the family of the Gabrielle on my database. A few weeks later, an elderly man who turned out to be her grandson rang and said he would be happy to meet me. So one hot summer afternoon, I went off to meet him, and he told me a story. Sunday the 8th of January 1888, Gabrielle's family had gathered for lunch at the farmhouse outside Arles. During the afternoon, a neighbour's dog attacked Gabrielle, biting her left arm. Dog bites were a serious threat. Not only could the wound become infected, and without penicillin this was a life-threatening injury, there was also a risk the dog might have rabies. If left untreated, an infected patient normally died within three days. A vaccine had been used by Dr Louis Pasteur for the first time 
less than three years previously, and its discovery had been widely reported in the local press. Gabrielle's family acted quickly. The town's vet was summoned while a local shepherd shot the dog. The autopsy confirmed that the dog was indeed infected by rabies. Gabrielle's wound was cauterized with a red-hot iron to kill any infection, but it was not protection enough. There was no time to waste. A telegram was dispatched to Paris by the doctor. Bags were packed, and arrangements made so that Gabrielle and her mother could leave Arles for the capital that very night to receive treatment at the Institut Pasteur. Gabrielle and her mother, dressed in traditional Arlesienne costume, arrived in Paris at 5.40pm the next day. The following morning, they went to Dr Louis Pasteur's surgery. Her medical file provides the details of her treatment. In all, she would have 20 doses of the vaccine made from the live rabies virus before returning to Arles. The family had spent a lot of money saving her life, and on her return home, she began working as a cleaner to help pay for her expensive treatment. It's possible that she found her job in the Rue Boudal through her cousins who lived nearby. Rachel was slowly coming into focus. Before her marriage, my Rachel, or Gabrielle, worked as a maid in the brothels during the night, and in the early morning she cleaned business premises on the Place Lamartine. The neighbourhood was close-knit and familiar, and Vincent must have seen her almost every day. Yet this still sheds no light on why he would choose to give her his ear. The clue came in the words Vincent said to her when he handed over his ear, which were repeated in various forms in almost all accounts of the drama. In Gauguin's account, Vincent said, Here you are, a memory of me. The local newspaper quotes Vincent as saying, Take this and keep it preciously, while the Le Petit Provençal newspaper states, Take this, it will be of use to you. Vincent was giving the young woman something he considered important. But why part of his body? And why her? Following her accident, Gabrielle was left with a significant scar. Vincent was obsessed with religion in the days leading up to the 23rd of December. In Gauguin's account, Vincent had come to believe himself a Christ. It may seem a stretch, but were the words he spoke that night recalling those of Christ at the Last Supper? This is my body. Do this in memory of me. Van Gogh had a great capacity for kindness. He would have been touched by the meek girl he saw working so hard with such meagre reward. He would have been moved by her damaged arm. She was exactly the sort of woman he was attracted to, a wounded angel he thought he could save. In May 1889, Dr. Théophile Perron wrote in his patient notes, I, the undersigned director of the Saint-Rémy Mental Home, certify that the man named Vincent van Gogh suffered an attack of acute mania with visual and auditory hallucinations that led him to mutilate himself by cutting off his ear. Today, he has himself asked to be admitted to the home. Since no hospital records exist from his time in Arles, this is the only medical diagnosis we have of Van Gogh's illness. Aware that he was a huge financial burden for his brother, Vincent fretted. It makes me very worried that I have done so many paintings and drawings without ever selling any. Yet one of his paintings, completed during the first week at the sanatorium, would later be one of the most expensive paintings ever sold when it was auctioned off in 1989, the irises. Amongst the deep purple and green of these wild flowers seen all over Provence is a lone white iris. This notion of being apart or somehow different became more pronounced in the paintings of Van Gogh's last year. His style changed and he began using a more muted palette particularly less of the bright yellow that had characterised the works before his first breakdown. On the 23rd of December, 
significantly the anniversary of his first attack, he tried to poison himself by eating paint. Once recovered, he told Teo that he had been quite disturbed for a week. While I was ill, damp, melting snow was falling. I got up in the night to look at the landscape. Never, never has nature appeared so touching and so sensitive to me. He was again showing signs of the hypersensitivity and paranoia that seemed to preempt all his breakdowns. Professionally speaking, 1890 began auspiciously. The first article on Van Gogh, written by Albert Aurier, appeared in the January edition of a well-respected art magazine. A month later, the Red Vineyard, one of his paintings from Arles, was purchased for 400 francs. There was more good news. Theo's wife, Jo, gave birth to a son on the 31st of January, whom they called Vincent Willem, in honour of Vincent, who was made the baby's godfather. Although still painting furiously and constantly struggling with his mental health, he managed to create one of his most beautiful works, Almond Blossom, for the birth of his godson. The birth of Theo's baby underlined for Vincent his anxieties about being a burden. Not only did his brother have to face the obvious extra expense of a new baby, but he too was suffering from ill health. Throughout the spring of 1890, Van Gogh was plagued by negative thoughts. Vincent left the sanatorium in May 1890 and travelled to Paris. He spent a couple of days in the capital to meet his nephew. Feeling that the countryside might be better for him, he left for the village of Auvers-sur-Oise, about ten miles from Paris, and took lodgings. Here he started painting again in earnest. He left Auvers on a brief day trip on the 6th of July to see his nephew, and wrote to Théo upon his return. Once back here, I felt very saddened and had continued to feel the storm that threatens you also weighing upon me. I feared, not completely but a little nonetheless, that I was a danger to you, living at your expense. The use of the past tense was a red flag. With a wife and growing family to support, Theo could not continue financing Vincent's life to the same extent. Two months later, on Sunday the 27th of July 1890, Vincent shot himself in the chest. The local GP was sent for, but there was nothing that could be done. Vincent van Gogh died of his wounds two days later. Theo was with him in his last moments. Emile Bernard was one of eight friends who came from Paris and described the scene. The coffin was covered in a white cloth and surrounded with masses of flowers, the sunflowers that he loved so much, yellow flowers everywhere. It was his favourite colour, the symbol of light that he dreamed of as being in people's hearts as well as in his works of art. In front of his coffin were his easel, his folding stool and his brushes. The day after Vincent's funeral, Theo wrote, How empty it is everywhere. I miss him so. Everything seems to remind me of him. Rebecca Front was reading Van Gogh's Ear, The True Story, by Bernadette Murphy. The abridger was Richard Hamilton, and the producer, Elizabeth Allard. Thank you for listening, and don't forget to join us tomorrow for yet another amazing story.